Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, writing this greeting with my own hand, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it's hard to believe, but this is our last message in 1 Corinthians, right? Wow, I even saw some, this, some visual wows as I said that. We've been, we've been going on in this book now, beautifully, wonderfully, difficultly sometimes, for six months. And a consistent picture that Paul paints of the church time and time again, I don't think can be better described than as a beautiful mess, a beautiful mess. And when I say mess, I mean a wreck, right? Because, look, no church is perfect, but... This church in Corinth, they did it up like a pro. They had all kinds of stuff going on. They had classism. They had cliques. They had folks visiting prostitutes. They had people getting drunk at communion. Um, I mean, there were folks celebrating incest. You remember that? Yeah? Some of you try not to. I get it. Needless to say, it's been interesting (laughs) going through 1 Corinthians. And I want you to imagine with me the Apostle Paul. He gets all this news. You know, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you may remember... He got all of this news of all this that's happening in Corinth. And you can kind of imagine him at the very end here, as we heard read, he writes the greeting with his own hand, but there's a good chance he didn't write the whole letter because of some visual impairments, but he's writing this as like a sign, this is really from Paul, but he's dictating more than likely the rest of the letter. And as he's going through answering some of the issues, talking about the issues, There's got to be a point where Paul just sits down and says, why am I even bothering with this church anymore? I mean, seriously. And whether you grew up in the church, whether this is your first time in church ever or in a long time, let me first say, we're glad you're here. I know it's difficult and it feels risky to come to a new place. Whether you're a regular or a newbie, okay, uh, there's been a point in all of our lives, I'm sure, where we felt... Like we wanted to give up on the church. It was just too messy. It was too hard, too heartbreaking, too frustrating. But Paul, he knew how the sausage was made. (laughs) He saw everything that was going on in the church. And you can't miss, but at every point in his letter, as we went time and time again, we find his rebukes are also stained with tears. His correction comes with this passion and love for the church. Why? Because the church is so worth it. The church is so worth it. I mean, look, we have a written record of not only one letter, but two pretty detailed and carefully crafted letters from Paul to the church in Corinth. We also know, hearing from Paul at other spots, that he's written more than just two letters to this broken and beautiful mess of a church in Corinth. He sees what God is doing among his broken people, and he won't give up. He won't give up. Church is messy, but it's so, so worth it. 
15 chapters now, we've heard this resound over and over again, so it's not any surprise when we come to chapter 16, we hear a similar message. Now, 1 Corinthians, as we've said time and again, is a letter. It's not an essay. It's not a short story. So we come to Paul's kind of final details here at the end of his letter. It's the PSs, you know, and the oops, I forgot. You know, the very important personal components here at the end of his letter. And we see Paul's heart just laid bare in very relational components. Say hi to so-and-so. Remember I said this as we look throughout all of chapter 16 this morning. But everything behind all these goodbyes and please remembers, Paul wants us to know the church is messy, but it's so worth it. Church is messy, but so, so worth it. But Paul, first, he wants us to know that it's worth working for. And I don't just mean me, okay? (laughs) The church is worth working for. It's worth working for. Look, if you look throughout chapter 16, if you've got your Bibles, if you're using one of the community Bibles, it's page 962, just to kind of reference in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we see all kinds of activities taking in all kinds, going on in all kinds of places, and God's at work in all of them to build up his church across the world. I mean, listen to some of the places mentioned here. Galatia is mentioned in verse 2, Jerusalem in verse 3, Macedonia in verse 5, Ephesus verse 8, Achaia verse 15, and the broader region of Asia, verse 19. The Messiah Jesus had died, and he rose again three days later, and the message is spreading like wildfire And one of the key movers and shakers is our main man, Paul. I mean, he's this dynamite church planner. Stanford University, um, they've developed this thing called the Orbis Project that can calculate time and distance of ancient travel. So they bring in, you know, weather, the modes of transportation. They account for landscape, etc. And I want you to think about this. As, As they programmed in his missionary journeys, Paul went on some three missionary journeys lasting a total of 11 years. He traveled just under 8,000 miles, a lot of that probably on foot. Being an entrepreneur, he engaged in his job building tents. He would preach the gospel in the marketplace, which was the common place of shared ideas. And when all was said and done, he planted some 15 to 20 churches in the most influential cities in the known world at that time. And who does he pick as his leaders? I always, this is so fascinating. Of course, you've got guys like Timothy, okay? They're the ones who know the scriptures. They grew up, you know, knowing about what God is doing. And in verse 10, we hear that Timothy's coming to Corinth because Corinth needs some deep help, right? But then Apollos, who's this really phenomenal orator, Paul says, you know, I tried to get him to come, but he doesn't want to get into this mess unless hell freezes over. And then you've got like this husband and wife duo, Aquila and Priscilla. yes. We can just kind of skim over this, but women have played a critical role in the movement of the church all the way from the beginning. And then you get these three no-names. Stephanus, who devoted all of his energy to the work of the church, Paul says, and then Fortunatus and Achaicus, who were most likely two slaves. You heard me right. These, These slaves were leaders in the church. And because this was so backwards and upside down from what they experienced in the rest of their culture, Paul has to say, hey, get over yourselves, all right? (laughs) I don't care how important you think you are. Obey the church leaders I've put in place. They may be slaves out there, but when you come as the people of God, they're your leaders. Obey them, submit to them, honor them. 
And it just goes to show how Paul, all the way at the beginning here, he follows Jesus and understanding and looking for leaders who aren't all about status, but are all about service, who understand that the church is worth working for. And I don't mean just paid positions, okay? People who saw the church as worth working for. And he wants to come back to Corinth, (laughs) but but he doesn't. And here's why. Look with me at verse 8. This is going to make sense. We're getting there. Just follow me. We're walking through 1 Corinthians 16 here. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, he says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. (laughs) A wide open door, and there are enemies. What's he talking about? Like, that seems such a weird juxtaposition of two ideas. When we think of a wide open door, we don't think of adversaries and uh, and opposition. Well, the historian Luke, in the book of Acts, He gives us some insight as to what Paul's talking about here. Paul had been in Ephesus for around two years, doing what he does, proclaiming the gospel, making friends, and making enemies. Gospel does that. And then a revival happens with a majority of the folks in this town coming to Jesus. And it messes with the economics of that community. (laughs) You see, Ephesus was a pagan center, and they had a lot of workers in Ephesus who were silversmiths and goldsmiths, and they would take these raw materials and create these idols. And they had these dutiful consumers that would come and buy these idols, and it kind of stirred the the economy in Ephesus. But now all these folks who used to come and buy the idols are following Jesus, and a market takes a deep turn south. One guy who's especially ticked is this guy named Demetrius. He's one of the business owners of this idol-making shop. And he starts stirring up all the other business owners. And he brought together a mob. And listen to what he says in Acts 19, verse 26. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul guy has persuaded and turned away a great many people from our businesses, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There goes our market, folks. Who does he think he is to come and challenge our livelihood, our very way of life? That's what the gospel does, doesn't it? It comes in and shakes up everything down to the very core of our economics. And then things start to get out of hand, and Paul almost loses his life, and then he hears about what's happening in Corinth, and he sits down and writes a letter. (laughs) Isn't this fascinating? A wide door for effective work. That's how Paul interprets this. And there are many adversaries. How can those two phrases be juxtaposed? Because for Paul, the church is so worth it. So worth it that effective work, wherever it's found, no matter what obstacle is there, is worth pursuing, worth pushing through. I mean, think about that. When all this is going down, death threats from Demetrius, he's got riots, he's got protests, and Paul hears that Corinth is struggling, and he writes him a letter because it's extremely important. It's worth working for. And anything that's worth working for at some point or another will call us to choose courage, not comfort, right? It'll call us to choose comfort or (laughs) courage, not comfort. And I think that's what Paul's calling each and every one of us this morning. We can hear that refrain as he's talking into this very specific context as he now speaks to the broader church through Scripture. In the mess, choose courage, not comfort. You see, it takes courage to get down on your knees when you think you know the answer right away. 
and to pray and ask God to give you wisdom. It takes courage to get down on your knees and wash someone's feet to serve. It takes courage to proclaim the gospel to those who profane and persecute for the sake of the gospel. But it's easy to run to the comfortable. It's easy to slide into the comfortable. And we need to hear Paul's words afresh here in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, where he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In other words, keep your eyes open to what God's doing. Keep your eyes open to what God's doing and don't be so naive as to think that God's the only one who's working here. That you're battling, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, protect me from evil, the evil one. The work of the devil that's also going on behind the scenes. So what does Paul say? Act like men and be strong. We didn't plan for this to fall on Father's Day, but how apropos, yeah? This phrase was a phrase used for soldiers when you study the, the language. If it was used for women, it was really to say, act like a man. <laughs> it, it was very much meant to, and we still th- say things like this today, like, man up, dude, right? Come on, grow up. Man up. Act like men and be strong. It's time to choose courage. But he also puts in there this important phrase that's in line with all of this, stand firm in the faith, because our courage can go extremely whack if it's not coming with the lens of faith and how Christ has modeled courage as self-sacrifice, yeah? Our Our courage finds its source in rightly and regularly studying God's word. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let anything draw you away from the truth. These are some of his last words. These are a please don't forget at the end of 1 Corinthians. And you know, one of the things that's got me most excited about what's happening here at Christ Community is the launch of our Trinity Evangelical Divinity School extension site that's going to be here. Um, starting this fall, anyone, you or anyone in KC, will be able to access worldwide, fully accredited seminary education. Trinity's my alma mater. I am a little biased. It's also where all of our fellows come through um, after they get their MDiv. And it's widely considered one of the best seminaries in the world. Um, the author of, uh, what is it, uh, Vampires? Oh, I can't remember now. It's this nationally recognized book series. She's left the church again. But what she says she loves to keep on her shelf when she reads time and time again is... Anne Rice. See, we do this. We're dialoguing. We're talking here as a church, right? Anne Rice, the author of what's her series? The Vampire, what is it? Vampire, not Diaries. That's a TV show, but um, yeah, it's a book on vampires. Shocker. That's our culture. Um, She'd left the church again, and what does she say she keeps on her bookshelves? D.A. Carson, an author of Trinity. She says, I read conservative biblical authors because they deal with the text, because they really wrestle with what the Bible says. And they don't just go cutting sections out. This is a world-class, renowned seminary with world-class, renowned professors. And it's going to be in our neighborhood. And we're going to get to partake in that. I'm going to get to be further enriched. I'm going to take more classes. And if this intrigues you, you can go to our website. You'll see we're starting one class this fall and one class in the winter. We're just tipping our toe here by some of my favorite professors But here's the other thing. I know not everybody gets excited about seminary, all right? (laughs) Some have accidentally called them cemeteries, and I don't think that's true of Trinity. But here's the deal. 
Each of us are called to stand firm in our faith, okay? And that's why it's so crucial for us every week as we gather together as the people of God around the word of God to center each other on what the book says, what God has spoken through various authors throughout time to guide his people for furtherance in time, okay? We need to stand firm in the faith, in scripture, and discussing our Bibles in our community groups through conversation starters or our various curriculums, and reading the Bible ourselves. Look, if you're not engaged in God's word daily, you're missing it. For your good, you're missing it. You're not going to be able to stand firm in your faith if you're not engaged in God's word daily. And if that's a difficult rhythm, we've also sought to provide a tool to help us as a church. It's called Open Here. Many of you have heard of it. Some of you are tired of hearing of it. But we're going to keep banging this drum because it's so crucial that you're engaged in God's word daily. If you don't know anything about it, we've got a little bookmark right over on the table as you exit this morning that has the necessary information both the uh, blog in which you can subscribe and also the readings for the rest of this month. But being in God's word daily, individually, and in community, and now institutionally coming this fall is a crucial component to working for the church and standing firm in our faith. The church is messy, but it's worth it. It's worth working for. But it's also worth, Paul wants us to know, it's also worth giving to. And some of us, as soon as we hear that, start to stiff up because we think finances. What does the church have any business talking about finances? Listen, I get more emails about money than I do anything else as a pastor. Money's so crucial. And we really struggle with this in the church in the West. If you go to many Southern Hemisphere churches or Eastern Hemisphere churches, there's some great transparency. You'll come marching down to the front. You'll drop your money in front of everybody in front of the church, okay, and then go back to your seat. And it's so ironic. We're some of the wealthiest sections of the church globally, and we have some of the biggest issues with giving. What's going on there? Look, I struggle with generosity. So this isn't me pointing a finger. This is me standing under God's word saying we've all got growth. Every time we take those spiritual assessments, you know how we did for our spiritual gifts assessment? <laughs> this is embarrassing. That's why I need to share it. Generosity is always on the bottom rung for me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is terrible as a pastor. Why? What's wrong with me? I've got room to grow here too. We all do. But that doesn't mean we just shrug our shoulders and say we'll get to that someday. We need to hear this news today as the church, as the people of God, for our good. God's not saying this to get something from us, but to to work in our good for us. And listen to what Paul says. He says, the church is worth giving to in chapter 16, verse 1. Look, look, Look what he says. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so also, so this isn't just for Corinth. He's starting to set habits in multiple churches for this. So you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper according to your income so that there will be no collecting when I come. What's going on here? Well, in AD 40, there was a great famine that went across Israel, actually. And the church, this urban church in Jerusalem was struggling. And so what Paul is doing is he's going around to these different churches to bring about a collection to help support this local church in an urban center of Jerusalem. And Paul calls on them now to say, okay, let's get smart about this, folks. Make this a habit of when you gather together on Sunday. So we don't always have to be reactive, but we can be proactive and be preparing for needs and actually bring about sustainability. 
put in a habit of weekly giving every Sunday, the first day of the week, when they meet. Every week when they were paid, each person was to put something aside. Not if there was something left over, not if we felt like it, not if the, the elder of the church had a really good idea that week and that really moved me, so I'm going to put an extra five bucks in the bucket. No, but every Sunday, every person gave. And then he gets uber practical. Chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, Paul gives an accountability process. <laughs> and willing to undergo these extra stringents. You know, I'll bring it, but if you really want, you can bring somebody else that can go with me to make sure I'm handling this money well. Okay, when I go to the church of Jerusalem, why does he do that? To bring confidence and stir greater generosity amongst that church. And here at Christ Community, we try to follow Paul's good example. We put our budget online. Look, there's nothing we're trying to hide. You see where the money goes and where it flows, okay? And every year, we seek to go through an auditing process, whether an internal audit or an external audit. And we want to go above and beyond, above reproach, to give you confidence And obeying God's call to be generous, it's being taken care of well. And to care for the poor. I mean, you look at our budget. There's a good chunk that goes to partners. There's a good chunk that goes to benevolence, which is the word of somebody in our community pops up and they say they have a need. That's from your general fund giving that goes to care for those within the congregation. It's caring for the church. It fuels the church. You get to find out how much is used to keep the lights on, how much is used for salaries. You get to find out how much we're giving to partners. I mean, it's there. We're meant to be transparent, accountable, thoughtful, sustainable. But why do we do all this? Because the church is worth giving to. So let's work together to be generous, to be givers, not hoarders. To be givers, not hoarders. Look, look. okay, here's the deal. Every Sunday, we should come expecting to receive. That's why we go to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. We come expecting to receive that which we did not earn. But let's not end with being spiritual hoarders when we all hold it tight to our chest. I think we can all agree that no one wants to be a hoarder. Have you ever seen those TV shows? It's weird. It's messed up, and it's so obvious, and yet we do this in our spiritual lives. Careful. We can mock and say, oh, what's that so silly? And yet that's what many of us are doing if we're not careful. That's where we naturally slide unless we are intentionally choosing to be givers. We're going to become hoarders. And it looks ridiculous from the outside in. And the world scoffs at that. Now, before I go any further, I need to say this. Thank you. Because here's the deal. And when I go to a conference or I talk with other pastors, I am consistently blown away, and so are other pastors at the generosity of Christ's community. Way to go. Amen. And seriously, it is a privilege to be a pastor here because of your intentional choosing to be givers and not hoarders. But let me say this as well. We've all got room to grow. Every one of us. Every one of us has got room to grow here. And you don't have to be super spiritual to jump in. Look at who Paul's talking to. This is the church in Corinth. (laughs) After everything, this is one of his final notes when he's talking to the church in Corinth. They've got all these issues, and he says, yeah, but you know what's Christianity 101? Giving. You've got slaves. You've got the wealthy. You've got newbies and regulars who aren't mature. And Paul says, look, each and every one of you, in the text, everyone, not the wealthy, not the ones that happen to have the margin, slaves and rich come with something to give every week after you've been paid. 
It's an emphasis of income. If you've been paid, it's out of that. For Paul and the early church, financial generosity. To be explicit, okay, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I think we know each other well enough. And if you're new, this is the way we do things here. Look, tithes and offerings are as much a part of the church as music, as a sermon, as the coffee, okay? These are regular parts of who we are and what we're called to be about as generous people made in the image of a generous God. And who doesn't want to know how much to give? That's always the question. How much? What's the percentage? Why do we ask that question? I I know we've got multiple reasons. Some of us, we just want to reach the minimum. Others of us want to check a, a box in a spiritual realm. Others of us are really genuine about wanting to be faithful, okay? You have to assess your own motivations on why you're asking that question. But here's the kicker. Paul isn't very explicit in what the percentage is. In the Old Testament, we see 10% was a common percent. That's actually what the word tithe means. It means 10%. Okay, this was what it was common in the Old Testament people of God. And what we find in the church, because of the grace of the gospel, is that everything, the bar is raised. Generosity is actually raised in the church. I don't know what that percentage is, but it's never lowered. The gospel doesn't come in and say, oh, well, all that. (laughs) Now nobody has to give anything. Well, then the lights never get turned on. And here's the deal. I I get this too, and I'm getting real practical here. We haven't done this, talked about this deal, but Paul talks about it, so we're going to talk about it. For many of us, that can feel impossible, 10%, right? 10% might as well be 90% because it just isn't going to happen where you're at in your life and the way your budget's structured at this point. I get that. So, and following Paul's practicality, I want to challenge you this morning. I want you to try this out. Start out giving something and just be consistent. Start off giving something and be consistent. Baby steps onto the bus. Remember this? What about Bob? Anyone? Baby steps. It takes baby steps. Give something and then increase the amount when you can. So if 2% is what you can do, it's good milk. I drink it. 2%, that might be what you need to do. Okay, it's not whole milk, but we'll get there, 2%. And then maybe you pay off a debt that's been a bit of a burden from different decisions that were made. Maybe a student loan, which was reality of going to school, you pay that down. Maybe you get a raise at work, reassess. Say, maybe I can go from 2 to 4% then. How can I grow as my capacity grows? How can my generosity and tithes and offerings grow? Now, I know this is getting touchy, um, but we need to hear it because money is an important component of us and the gospel touches every component of us. When we get baptized, our wallets get really soaking wet, okay? Um, and some of us in here are really enslaved at money, with money. You don't have to have a lot to be enslaved with money. You can have almost no money and be enslaved with money. And it's short-circuiting your walk with Christ. Don't discard that from your discipleship. Because your love of money is so great. Some of you are really squirming in your chairs. I know for me, I was squirming when I was reading Paul. I was like, oh man, this is a good word for me. The guy who always has this low, non-spiritual gift of generosity, right? Well, check this though. When you give, yes, of your time and your talents, and these are important, and I'll never downplay it, but also of your money, not in emplacement of your money, But alongside, you get to be a part of building the church. Not necessarily building a building of the church, although that sometimes is a component of it. 
But building up the church where lost people are meeting Jesus and catalytic work is, being com- and is coming out of the people of God across our city. And not just here downtown, but across five campuses. I know Leewood has sometimes raised money for the Jerusalem of downtown. <laughs> you know? We get it. Okay, We're in different financial departments here <laughs> of our city, different financial makeups. And that's the beauty of even being multi-campus. Okay? It's a great gift of our structure. But we should be growing so that we too can say, hey, for the sake of Shawnee downtown, let's do this. Not just where we're paying our bills, but we can now contribute to the wider mission of Christ's community, yeah? And it's also for the wider organizations we're a part of. And see, if you're not giving, you're missing out on being a part of that financially. I don't want you to miss out on that. So for example, okay, we need to tell a good story here. For, for one of our partners, Mission Adelante and KCK, serves immigrant populations in the city uh, by teaching English, connecting them with resources, and planting churches. Um, And they wanted to build some housing for interns that would equip them for ministry in the city. And it's because of your regular generosity. Out of our general fund giving, we were able to get that project done ahead of time. We took a chunk and we said, let's just get this building done quicker so you guys can be catalyzed for ministry and KCK with the particular population you're reaching And some of you here this morning, you gave of your time, your talent, your expertise to actually work on that building. But everyone who's ever given a dime, your fingerprints are all over that building. I don't want you to miss out on that. That's what we get to be a part of as a church. And and listen to this. Sarah on staff with Mission Adelante, she sent us an email when the project was done. And listen to what she wrote. I can't thank you enough for your partnership in this project. As you know... I didn't walk into this project expecting to serve as the general contractor, which was a funny issue. She wasn't. It just it was happened. But I'm grateful beyond words for the ways it has taught me about God's character, his gentleness, and his working through people and community. I've learned a thing or two about load-bearing walls, energy codes, and the proper way to trim out a window, too. Um, but you are the medium of so many of those lessons. I personally... And Mission Adelante corporately thank you for your generosity of finances, of time, of expertise, of professional connections, of prayer, and of relationships. If you've given in any of those capacities, no matter how big or small, you are a part of making that happen. You hear that? You get to celebrate. That's not something they did. That's something we did together in unity for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in very tangible and very explicit forms. And you know, because of your generosity, I could tell you stories of other folks downtown. I actually had to weed them out. I had them originally, but I was like, you don't want to be here for an hour? Well, some of you, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I don't. So B- Brookside, Olathe, Leewood, and Shawnee, what he's done in KCRM, Kansas City Rescue Mission in our partnership, with Christo Ray, with Culture House, the Crossroads Academy, over in Iran, in R- R- Rwanda, And now this new burgeoning relationship in Berlin, Germany, and others. If we aren't intentional, we miss out on all of that. You see? We have to choose to be givers. Otherwise, we'll drift towards hoarding. And we'll miss out on the stories of what God's doing. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. There's so much joy and opportunity and a gift to be a part of that. Church is messy. Getting all up in your finances is kind of messy, but it's worth it. 
It's worth working for. It's worth giving to. And lastly, it's worth loving. It's worth loving. You know, if you wanted one word to sum up all of what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, it's love. Love. If they'd have just got this one thing right, Paul would have never had to write a letter to them. I mean, I want you to think through this. If we just do a quick review of the book in 30 seconds or less, they wouldn't be fighting over whose leader was smarter in chapters 1 through 3 that Paul's wrestling through. They wouldn't be questioning Paul's leadership in chapters 4 and 9. They wouldn't be suing each other in chapter 6. They wouldn't be sleeping with each other in chapter 7. They wouldn't be divorcing each other as well. They wouldn't be abusing the weaker members in their church in chapters 8 through 10. They wouldn't abuse the poor among them at the Lord's table, chapter 11. They wouldn't worship so selfishly in the use of their gifts, chapters 12 through 14. And so he ends with all of this with a call once again to love. Chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 again. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. There's the umbrella. There's the umbrella. And so as we come to an end to this beautiful mess... Grow in love, not pride. Grow in love, not pride. And what we saw a couple weeks ago about love is, yes, there's a component of love that resides in our emotions, but the real life-giving love that moves us is the love to choose to act in behalf of the other, even when the current of emotions are going the opposite way. We've seen that most evidently and brilliantly displayed in the gospel, and that's how we define our love. Grow in that love, not pride. And so I want to encourage you amidst all of this, as you think back to over, you know, 1 Corinthians in general and just kind of Paul's summations here in 1 Corinthians 16, take one next step. One. Maybe you're not serving in the church anywhere. It's worth working for. And like I said, it's not just paid positions. I mean all of us. It's worth working for. If you don't know where to plug in, talk with me, talk with Mike, talk with any of the pastors. We want to help. Maybe you're not giving of tithes and offerings because you have this either outlandish expectation or you think the church isn't worth it. The church is worth giving to. Start somewhere and be consistent. Start somewhere. Give something and be consistent. And I don't, I don't know what that next step's going to look like for you. I really don't. Um, but here's a couple things that you'll be able to recognize if you're really taking the right next step. One, it'll involve prayer because we have a lot of blinders on in our lives. We, there are certain aspects of our lives we don't want to see and we need the Spirit to work and reveal those. Secondly, if Jesus is involved in it, it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage. He's not calling us to the next easy step or we would take that naturally. He's taking us to the next hard step. Because in that courageous next step, he's forming us into a kind of person, a person who will trust him, who will lean into him, rather than trusting in the security of our own feet. Yeah? And then lastly, it'll engage the church community. It'll engage the church. Don't go rogue, okay? God's called me to this. It's very hard. I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to plow down everybody in my No, 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 no. Remember even our framework for in the spiritual gifts. Look out, then look in, and then look around for confirmation. Invite your community group, the church, into what God maybe has called you to. God's speaking through other people in your life as well. And lastly, do it all in love. All in love. That can sound really mushy, 
okay? But it's at the heart, when we really understand what, what Paul is calling us to, what God is calling us to, it's at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Because when God sent his son, he didn't send his son to prove how smart he was. He didn't send his son to shove our faces in our mess. He didn't send his son to existentially say, I know what it feels like to be human. He didn't send his son just to show us how to live. He came out of his great love for us to die. That was his primary purpose because we as broken individuals had rebelled against our cosmic king, our creator. And the result of treason is death. And we needed someone to die in our place to bring reconciliation. And once we embrace what God came to do for us, we can finally come to see what he's calling us to do now. You see, when he saw humanity cower in fear and choose a comfort that leads us to destruction, Jesus Christ in courage went to the cross. When we are so selfish, we can't even share a small fry from McDonald's. I don't know about you, but when I was little, you know, my sisters would always try to steal out of my fries, and so I would fake sneeze on them. (laughs) So they couldn't have my... What's wrong with us? We can't even share a small fry from McDonald's. And yet, God gave his only son... And whoever believes on him is also given eternal life. That's who our God is. Generous to the max. And we're called to follow him. And when we're stuck in our own pride, our own arrogance and despair, while we were yet enemies, when we were sinners, we weren't headed his direction. As we sang, when we were on our hell-bound race, God said, time out. And that's when he died for us. And he said, I love you. All out of love. And then he rose again. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again to now create a community who will proclaim this message explicitly. The gospel, the good news that Jesus has died, rose and rose again and is coming again to a lost and dying world. And even alongside of that, to now embody this message with courage, generosity, and love. Friends, God is at work here, right? He's at work in his church. He thinks the church is worth it. And he's making us into something beautiful, something so astounding that Jesus promised in 2,000 years, this promise has been and remained true, that not even the gates of hell will overcome it. 2,000 years, the resiliency, when outside forces continue to press down on the church, when inside forces in our own sin and pride try to destroy the church. It's survived 2,000 years, such that even when tragedy comes knocking on our door, when hate comes to a prayer meeting for an hour in Charleston, South Carolina, and mows down nine of our brothers and sisters... These aren't people out there. These are our people. This is the church. You know how the church responds? You know how church members respond? You know how the family that was closest to them responds? They come with courage into the courtroom. They stare the murderer in his face via screen. They can see them. He can see them. And what do they say with a love that's bigger than themselves? Give you. Weeping, 
gasping for air if you've seen the video. What do they say? Turn to Jesus, man. I don't even, I love you too much. I can't even see, I can't even imagine you with an eternity apart from Christ. Turn to Jesus. He's your only hope for salvation. I forgive you. What you did was wrong. I miss my, my family, but I forgive you. I love you. Turn to Jesus. That's the church. That's what happens when the people of God gather as the church and they strengthen, they stand alongside of one another and they reflect Christ. That's the church. She's worth working for. She's worth giving to. She's worth our love. She's worth it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the gift of the church. You love the church, not because we're beautiful, but as your word says, you love us to make us beautiful. God, give us the strength and grace and patience to love the church, to love our church, even when it hurts, even when it's hard, and even when it disappoints us. And as your church, we pause now to pray for our brothers and sisters in Charleston. We're overwhelmed with sorrow over this act of pure evil and racism and injustice. And we cry out, how long, O Lord, until your justice will roll down like mighty waters, will prevail until you set this broken world right. But we're also overwhelmed by their grace, that your love for them would overflow in the forgiveness of their enemies. There's no more beautiful picture of the church and the gift of your grace in Christ than that. May our brothers and sisters continue to cling to your son in their grief and their sorrow and confusion. You're near to them and you've proved it in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. May we, your church here in Kansas City, continue to pursue justice with the grace and love that our brothers and sisters in Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church have done. And Lord, this shooting is a reminder that in this life we do not just struggle against flesh and blood but against the powers and principalities, that there's an evil, an evil one in this world that can only be defeated by Jesus when he returns victoriously. So with that, we have but one prayer above all prayers. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen and amen. And it's at moments like these, in the face of such atrocities in our nation, but it's all the more important we gather around the table together. The table where we remember Christ as the church. We remember that hope is possible in chaos, that forgiveness is possible for the worst, where reconciliation is possible in a world divided. We eat in solidarity this morning with our brothers and sisters in Charleston. Before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us this meal. It's a meal that proclaims the gospel to our senses of taste and touch and smell such that through common broken bread, we remember Christ's body broken on our behalf. Through common poured juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And all who are followers of Jesus are welcome to come and partake. 
If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we are ecstatic you're here. Use this time for Jesus to continue to reveal himself. Pray that the love of God would become alive in your own life and you would surrender to Christ, the true Savior of your joy, your hurts, your very life. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you can come down one of the two communion or one of the two uh, aisles here. You'll go back to one of our two communion stations. You'll gather a piece of bread in groups of four to six, dip it in the juice, and then partake together. If you have a child who is here who's yet to proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we offer a blessing from our servers in the same vein that Jesus blesses children as they come to him. But before we come, let us remember what has been handed down to us as we seek to stand firm in the faith. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.